Well, if a man's not ready to get up and preach after singing like that and songs that match so perfectly with what we're going to be talking about tonight, then I just don't guess you can get ready. But I appreciate so much the, the sentiment of those songs, and I hope that all of us, and it seems that you did, sung it with great fervor from your heart as we're going to talk about some things relating to that tonight. I want to express my appreciation to the Cunninghams for having us uh, this afternoon in their home. Uh, it was just wonderful. I appreciate that so much, giving me an opportunity to be with some of you and just to enjoy some great southern cooking. And, and uh, that's one of the good things about being a preacher in the south. Those potlucks are always wonderful, and I appreciate uh, that so very much and appreciate them being so hospitable to us. I want to mention tomorrow night's lesson. It's called Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage, Words to Speak on God's Behalf. I don't want you to think that that's going to be some kind of technical lesson like you know, A is married to B, and then B divorces A and marries C, and it's not really going to be all of that. Uh, but it is going to teach the truth on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. But most of all, it's going to be helping us to see uh, why we need to hold on to our marriages and the terrible consequences that can come uh, when there is a divorce. Uh, it'll be a painful lesson in some ways for some, but I've always found that even those that it is painful for, I've never had anyone to say anything other than, Jeff, preach it, preach it, preach it. And uh, so if you know of someone who's struggling, their marriage looks like it's struggling, it may can be some preventative maintenance for them and give them something to think about that would be helpful. And so I tell you that so that you can be preparing a little bit along those lines. Tuesday night, Jesus in my home. If you want to invite someone to show them the difference that Jesus can make in your home, uh, that's what we'll be doing on Tuesday night. And we'll be saying some more about the other lessons as time uh, goes, goes on. Take your Bibles tonight, please, and turn to Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1 in your Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus chapter 1. Some time ago, I had the opportunity to go and to visit a life-size model of the tabernacle. They had it set up very much like it would have been, perhaps, in the time when Moses was leading the children of Israel from Egypt all the way to the Promised Land. This was the very heart and the center of the nation as they camped around this. You can imagine in a conservative estimate, 1.5 million people that are camped around this, which is the heart and soul of the nation. God makes his presence known in the back portion of this tabernacle that is referred to as the most holy place, the Shekinah, the glory of God, resting over it at night. I want to tell you, that's a humdinger of a, of a campfire, isn't it? But can you imagine being a part of that kind of thing? Uh, that is a representation of it at night. What an awesome thing it would have been to behold. I want to suggest to you, though, that the very setup of the tabernacle preaches some things, some very powerful messages that you get just in just looking at it. First of all, one of the things that I notice is that there is a fence. And I don't know about you, but anytime I see a fence, it pretty well kind of says, uh, stay out of here, keep out, uh, don't come past this point. It says something along those lines. And so here is a message that is being preached by the fence itself. God is saying, keep your distance. God is a holy God, and the Israelites had sin on their record, and there is a sense in which that was serving somewhat as a barrier between them and God. They were unable to enjoy, all of them, the closest kind of fellowship with God, because God cannot have fellowship with sin. 
And I want to tell you, if all they had ever had was offense, it would have been a pretty, you know, terrible message to think about. But thank God there was more than that. There was a door. And that preaches something too. But there wasn't just one door. There was just one way inside that fence. And so it seems that in that, God is saying, but I'll give you a way. I'll give you a way and yet only one way to have fellowship with me. And that way was right here. At an article of furniture that was referred to as the altar of burnt offering. What was it that would happen here? Well, I knew exactly what happened there. And so on the day that I visited this life-size replica of the tabernacle, there were a number of people present. And uh, the person who was giving the presentation and telling all about the tabernacle and what it was all about was asking for volunteers. And as soon as she asked for a volunteer, I just, whoop, I mean, I'm, I mean, right away, I've got my hand just as high as it could go. I might have even been on my tiptoes because I wanted to be a part of this thing. And I guess she must have seen my eagerness, and so she pointed and said, yes, sir. And, and so I, I made my way, and I was going to get to participate in the things that were being, being done. And I knew that this would be about as close as I would ever get to the real thing. A little bit dated. It's been a while since it happened. There's a picture of me and the lamb. And you may notice that my hand is on his head. If this had been real, the situation would have been on this day that I would have been an Israelite. And on this day, I have sinned. I have sinned against the God of heaven. And so I had to bring a lamb. I had to bring one that was without blemish. And the first thing that I would have to do is put my hand on the head of that lamb. Notice Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 4. Leviticus 1 and verse 4, it says, concerning the one who has sinned, then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. God made the sinner do that. And I want to tell you, because I knew what all of this was about, I felt the emotions of this moment. As I placed my hand on the head of that lamb, and by the way, I might say to the children, that's not real, that's a stuffed animal. It's just like something you play with at home. It's not real, so don't let that frighten you too much. It was just for demonstration purposes. But as I put my hand on the head of the lamb, I felt the, the power of this moment because what this meant is that I have sinned. I'm the one that has done wrong. And yet this animal that is precious and innocent and does not deserve what's about to happen, all of that's about to come upon him. I felt the emotions of that moment. But the emotions of that moment ran even deeper because when I looked at this lamb on this day, I saw a whole lot more. Stay with me and I'll tell you the rest of the story. The next thing that would have had to have happened on this day is I would have had to have taken my knife and I would have had to kill it. In Leviticus, the first chapter, beginning in verse 10, it says that if his offering is of the flocks, of the sheep or of the goats, as a burnt sacrifice, he shall bring a male without blemish. He shall kill it 
on the north side of the altar before the Lord, and the priest Aaron's sons shall sprinkle its blood all around the altar. I think I had missed that for a long time. I, I, I kind of had the idea that what you did, you know, when you sin, you just got your animal and you just brought it to your priest and you said, here you go. And you just kind of be bopped on your way. God said, no, sir, you will not get away that easily. Not only do I have to place my hand on the head of that animal, it is the worshiper, it is the sinner who has committed the sin that had to kill it. This is not the priest killing it. It is the one who has committed the sin. And I want to tell you, if that had been a real lamb on that day, there is no way that I would have ever raised my hand. No way would I have ever volunteered to do such a thing. I want to give you an idea of what I mean by that. A few years ago, we had this little fella in our home. His name was Benson. We loved him. I miss him. I still do. By the way, he dies sometime later, not in this story I'm about to tell you. But uh, if you will notice that picture, and maybe even this one, and look at the size of my hand. And then look at Benson. That gives you an idea of as big as that fella ever got. He was tiny. I mean, he was really tiny. And he stayed that way all the while. One night, uh, my back was hurting me some. And I don't know why it, I like to do this. But when it's hurting really bad... Sometimes what I'll do is I'll just lay on the kitchen floor. He's got the ceramic tile there. And your back is, is allowed just to kind of stretch itself out. And so I was lying there on the kitchen floor, stretching my back out, just laying there flat and looking around. And I was noticing the cabinets and, and uh, the work, that the craftsmanship that was involved in the cabinets. And uh, I was thinking about the man who did that and what great work he did. And I guess I kind of got engrossed in that and, and didn't realize that Benson had climbed up on me evidently. And uh, because he doesn't weigh anything, I had not even detected that he was up on me. Well, after a while, I just finally decided that I had stretched out enough, and so I just got up. And so when I got up and stood up, I saw something flying through the air. And the next sound that I heard was the sound of something that almost sounded like a cantaloupe being dropped to the floor and popping. I knew immediately what had happened, and I looked down, and Benson was on the floor. His body was convulsing. His legs were sticking straight out. He had this terrible, deep, dark, hollow stare in his eyes as he continued to be more and more motionless. And all I could think was, oh, no. I have just killed him. Or at least he's going to be neurologically damaged from now on. And I don't mind telling you. And I know it may sound kind of silly. But all I knew to do was just talk to God. And it may sound like it was kind of a small thing. But he did make these little creatures. He made them where they're lovable. He made them where they could be our friends and our, you know, our little company around the place. 
And so finally, I just said, God, I know that there's a lot that's going on in this world. I know there's a lot that you have to deal with, a lot that you're concerned about. And I know this isn't very big at all, but it's big to me right now. And I just said, God, please, please, God, please help this little fella. It was tearing me up because it wasn't Benson's fault. Benson hadn't done a thing. He was totally innocent. None of this was his fault. It was all my fault. It was my fault, and I had done it to him. And it was killing me. I called my veterinarian, who's a member of the church, and he said, I could get you to bring him in, but I, I, he said, let's just give this a little time. And uh, he asked me a few questions. I responded to those questions. And so we, we gave it a little time, and little by little, Benson began to, to come around. I preached that story uh, at a place one time and never did tell the rest of the story. And in the intermission, everybody's coming up to me saying, well, what about Benson? What about Benson? <laughs> and um, I, I told him Benson's fine. Benson made it. He just kind of walked crooked for a while. You know, he'd go around a doorway and normally, you know how they go around those doorways? Well, he'd try to go around the doorway and his back end would hit the door every time because he just couldn't get the back end to line up with the front end for a while. He had a concussion. But if that gives you a little bit of a feeling of why I would have had such a hard time killing innocents, that's what I felt on that day. And you hear me say something like, I would not have volunteered on that day. I just could not have done that. And some people who know that I'm a deer hunter say, I don't get that. I don't, I don't, I don't understand how you say you, couldn't, you just couldn't do that. Well, here's why. When I'm deer hunting, I don't have to make contact. You know? He's out there 100 yards, put him in the scope, pull the trigger, and, and, you know, I don't have to make contact, but there's just something about, mm, there's just something about making the contact that's just hard. And so I wouldn't have volunteered. I just could not do that. If God's going to make me put my hand on his head, and I cannot do that. If you'll pardon my gruesomeness, I do think it is important for us to know about this. One of the guys back home, his name is Jordan Lovell, and he has some goats. And, and I was asking him about that one day, and I asked him if he would just kind of tell me a little bit about that, about what's involved in that kind of thing when you decided that one is going to be taken. And here's what he said. He said, I don't like killing one. You hang them up by their back legs. You work the skin down so that their neck is exposed. You cut their throat. And I'll stop with that, but... He ends by saying it's quick, it doesn't last long, and the animal dies. And every veterinarian that I've ever talked about said that's about as humane as it gets as far as how you do those kinds of things. And you may be saying tonight, why are you doing this, preacher? Why, 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 are, you, why are you so graphic in all of this? I mean, is that really necessary? And yet I believe that it is fully necessary because we are so sterile in our society, we are so moved, removed from this kind of stuff that we don't really sense what all was involved in this. And I think it is extremely important for us to know it. All of this was a school. This was a school where God was teaching some of the most serious lessons that could ever be learned. And listen to me. This was a place where God was not teaching us about something. He was teaching us about someone. Someone who was going to come down the line, way down the road. Let me share with you some lessons that we ought to get from the Old Testament and the Old Testament sacrifices. The first one is this.
Our God is a holy God who cannot have any fellowship with those who are practicing sin. That's what the tabernacle was preaching. You could not miss that message. This is a holy God who cannot fellowship sin. A second thing that you would have been sure to get from this school is that sin is ugly and sin is costly. You know, sometimes we talk about the beauty of the tabernacle. And it was. It was an extremely beautiful thing. If you had walked in the most holy place, which, by the way, you were not allowed to do. The only person that could do that was a regular priest. But if you had walked into the holy place, you would have seen boards that are covered with gold. And there is a seven-pronged candlestick, and the light is just glimmering off of this gold. Up above you is tapestry that has beautiful colors in it. And woven into it are cherubim, angelic beings. And all of this stuff is around you. The smell of incense perhaps is there in the uh, holy place. Wow, what a beautiful place. It was. It really was. But the thing that we do not often get about the tabernacle, folks, is that the tabernacle was a carnage house. This place was a butcher shop. This place stunk. When you have sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice and the blood is dropping to the ground and it is coagulated and you've got sacrifices that are being hung up. Those of you who have done this kind of thing and know about this kind of thing know exactly what I'm talking about when we talk about this place being a mess. You could not have missed that. That This is what sin does. Sin is ugly. And sin is costly. Another lesson that you could not have missed is that any time someone sinned, something had to die. That's just the way it was. That's the way it went down. Even the New Testament repeats that message in Romans the 6th chapter in verse 23. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, as Paul is talking about the wages or the penalty for sin... He says in Romans 6 and verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Anytime someone sins, something had to die. The wages of sin is death. God taught that over and over in his school. You could not have missed also that God places high value on blood. Because he says therein is life. In Leviticus chapter 17. Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 10. In Leviticus 17 and verse 10 it says. Leviticus 17 10. Whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among you who eats any blood. I will set my face against that person who eats blood. I will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. God says you will respect it. You will respect it and hold it up in the high and holy place that it is. You do not eat this. You treat this with sanctity. Because therein is life. A person spills his blood and his life ebbs away. There is our life right there. 
And God is saying, you will hold it high and in reverence. You don't treat this stuff like common stuff. You know, the Bible talks a lot about blood. And I think we need to understand that what it's saying is a life is being given for a life. And this is not a mere donation we're going to be talking about tonight. This is giving it all. This is giving it all. And then there's this matter. God was planting a concept of a substitute dying in my place. That would be the vivid thing that you take home with you. It ought to be me. It's my sin. But this innocence is a substitute in my place. And God is going to be able to pass over the sinner when he sees the blood of the substitute applied. He's going to be able to pass over the sinner when he sees the blood of the substitute applied. I'm shifting now to another day in Israelite history. Exodus chapter 12, if you would go with me there. Exodus chapter 12. In Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, Egypt is crippled by all the plagues that God has brought upon them. God signed old Pharaoh up. When he said, who is God that I should obey his voice? I've often said he signed him up for Plagues 101, gave him a 10-lesson course, and when he got through, Pharaoh knew exactly who God was. But that last one was referred to as the Passover. God had told the Israelites that they were to take a lamb and they were to apply the blood over, their, over the doorpost, to the doorpost and then over, over the lintel on the top. Take that blood of that animal, literally take it and smear it all over their home there at the door. Beginning in verse 3, Exodus 12. Speak to all the congregation of Israel and say to them, On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And did you catch verse 6? You shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. And then the whole assembly of the congregation shall kill it at twilight. Do you catch that? You go and you get this little lamb. You get it on the tenth day and you keep it. You keep it with you. Until the fourteenth day of the month. I want to tell you what's going to happen at my house. Oh. Oh, he's so cute. Can I feed him? Can he sleep with me tonight? Oh, please let me spend time with him just a little bit longer. <laughs> it's just cute. And I know exactly what's going to happen in our house. We're going to get really, really, really attached over that little while. In fact, just recently, we, uh, back at our place, uh, we had a motherless calf. The mom died on us. And we, we've taken the calf, and we're now trying to take care of the calf. And all of a sudden, somebody says... I know a perfect name, Shelby Moo Moo. I, I said, no, don't name it. Don't name it. You name it, you get attached. I know what's going to happen at my house. We get attached and God is 
allowing some of that here. You keep it until the 14th day of the month. And then the whole assembly of the congregation shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. And then verse 12. God says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now verse 13. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood. We sing the song, don't we? When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God says, when I see the lamb, I'll pass over you. Now let's fast forward many, many more years to the opening pages of the New Testament, and we come to the days of John the Baptist. In John chapter 1 and verse 29, John had been saying, prepare the way for the Lord. And in John 1 and verse 29, it says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him. Notice what he says when he sees Jesus. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold. And I'm all the time telling people, anytime you see the word behold in the Bible, it's like a big stop sign that says, whoop, stop right here. Stop. Look. Marvel, be amazed, contemplate, behold, the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look at verse 35 and 36. John 1, verse 35 and 36, almost verbatim. It continues on and says again the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Now do you know what I saw? What I felt on that day? This is God's Lamb. The one that God will provide. On that day when I put my, head on the head of the, my hand on the head of the Lamb, I saw Jesus. And folks, that is exactly what God was teaching in that school. It's not going to be a four-legged lamb that atones for my sins. It's going to be a man. It's going to be the Son of God. It's going to be a man dying in my place. And only that will do the job. In Hebrews, the ninth chapter, in verse 22. Hebrews, chapter 9, in verse 22, says... Hebrews 9 and verse 22, according to the law, almost all things are purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. In Hebrews chapter 10, he begins to talk about all those Old Testament sacrifices that they offered back there. He says in Hebrews 10 and verse 1, for the law having a shadow of good things to come. And not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then they would, not, uh, would they not cease to be offered? For the worshippers once purged would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. Now verse 4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. 
All those goats, all those animals, all those things that were offered back there in the Old Testament. He says it wasn't possible that that could take away sin. God did not forgive them on the basis of those sacrifices. For one thing, it wasn't a goat that sinned. I'm not a goat. I'm not a lamb. I'm a man. But God could see that coming down the road, there would be a man who takes on skin and lives down here, the perfect life, without blemish. And it will be Jesus who gives his life for the sins of the world. Jesus is our Passover lamb. And only his blood will take away our sins. I want to share with you a few things that were interesting during a typical Passover in the days of Jesus. I'm told that during the Passover in the days of Jesus, it was not uncommon for as many as 250,000 lambs to be slaughtered during one Passover. Jews numbering in in the two million numbers would gather in Jerusalem. 250,000 lambs. I did a little checking on that and found that one lamb can spill about one quart of blood. You've got 250,000 lambs each spilling about a quart of blood. And let me tell you what that adds up to. That is 60,000 gallons of blood in just one Passover. Sorry if you're squeamish. You say, preacher, help me get it. I can't get my head on 60,000 gallons. Take six of those right there, fill them to the brim, and stack them on top of each other. And that'll give you a little bit of an idea about how much blood is shed during a typical Passover in the days of Jesus. That's a massive amount of blood. But listen to me, it goes further than that. I want you to take that 60,000 gallons of blood offered during one Passover. I want you to take all the days in the Old Testament when they were supposed to do that. And also they do two every day. You take all that, all the years that Israel was a nation. All the years that they were a nation. You take that and you multiply all that and you put all that together. And I want to tell you, you end up absolutely... With a staggering, staggering, staggering amount of blood. An astronomical amount. And yet, here's what I want to say. You take all of that blood combined and it can't take away even one single sin. Jesus' blood, though, can take away all the sins of the world. Go to Hebrews, the 10th chapter. Beginning now in verse 11. If you're prone to write in your Bible, here's one of those places where I would. I remember one time a lady saw my Bible and she said, Oh, you write in your Bible? <laughs> like she was kind of like blown away. You write in your Bible? I said, You don't? <laughs> I believe we ought to work them over. But anyway, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11 says, Every priest stands. There it is right there. Circle it. Every priest stands. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Here's a couple of points I want to make right quick. Did you notice it says says every priest stands? 
You know, if you look at the articles of furniture that you have at the tabernacle, you'll see a number of things. The altar of burnt offering, the bronze laver, and you go on inside, and you got the, bron- the candlestick, and you got the altar of incense, you got the table of showbread, you got the ark of the covenant. You just, you know, you got all that. You know what you don't see at the tabernacle? There's no chair. There's no chair. The man doesn't sit down. And on, at Passover, my understanding is, is you would have several priests and they would just pass blood, basins of blood, one to the other, one to the other, one to the other, until it's all doused there at the base of the altar of burnt offering. They stand, but the point of contrast here, it says in verse 12, is this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down, sat down, done. I like to say one and done, one and done. One sacrifice, done. From that time, waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Raises a good question. Where does 60,000 gallons of blood poured at the base of the altar burn offering? Where does that go? I did a little work on that. There are a number of pretty reliable sources that speak about a drainage system that was flowing from the temple mount, installed at the base of the altar, and then moving down through the hillside with water constantly trickling through it so that what you had coming out near the bottom, near the brook Kidron, is a mixture of blood and water. And that's constantly flowing during the time of Passover, according to a number of sources. Blood and water. That's what I want you to key in on, blood and water. Go to John 19. In John 19, beginning in verse 31. John 19, verse 31. John is speaking about these days. And in verse 31, it begins saying, Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath... For that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. They're breaking their legs so they cannot lift up and breathe. But when they come to Jesus, verse 33, it says they saw that he was already dead and they did not break his legs. And then one of the soldiers, catch this, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear... And John records that when they pierced his side with a spear, blood and water came out. I can't prove that John is trying to make the connection, but if this is so, John certainly would have known about it. And he says, listen, I'm telling you, when they pierced his side, blood and water came out. The next verse says, And he who has seen is testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows he's telling you the truth so that you might believe. Verse 36, for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture that says they shall look on him whom they pierced. John says, I'm telling you, they didn't break a bone. They didn't break a single bone and blood and water came out. You know what he's trying to say? Jesus is our Passover. He's the Passover lamb. And 1 Corinthians 5 says it. Jesus, our Passover. That's what John is trying to get across. What about that passage about not a bone being broken? Where does that come from? That's Exodus chapter 12 and verse 46. 
When they were told to get that lamb, God told them they were not to break its bones. Why was Jesus' bones not broken? Because I tell you, if one single bone of the body of Jesus is broken, he's not the Passover. He's not the Passover lamb. He fulfills it all the way down to his bones. Jesus had called his body a temple, and from that temple flowed blood and water. I'm not saying for sure that John made that connection, but it's interesting to think about that at the same time that Jesus dies on the cross, blood and water is likely still flowing from the temple. Here's my question. Is anything stirring within you? It sure ought to be. It ought to cause us to see the seriousness of sin. Folks, don't ever think that sin is funny. Don't ever laugh at it. Don't ever downplay it because God is going to give every one of us a big fat elf on our report card if we don't get the point tonight about how serious sin is. Secondly, it ought to make us think and determine not to sin. Let me ask you this question tonight. Would you sin if God required of you today to do what I did on that day? You know, God can do anything. You know, he's the God of all ages. You know, if God wanted to, he could put you in a time capsule and he could take you back to the cross, couldn't he? He could do that if he wanted to, right? And here you are, you're thinking about sinning and God says, hold on a minute. Before you do, hop in this capsule, let's go. And he takes you back to the cross. He puts you on the ground where they have Jesus on a cross and he says, I want you to put your hand on his head. And you put your hand on the head of Jesus. And you watch as they... And you watch him convulse and writhe in pain. And you know that every bit of it is happening because of me. It's happening because of me. He's done nothing. He does not deserve what's happening to him. This is innocence as there ever was innocence. And I cause it. Now let me ask you, would you come back to this day and time having been made to do that and then go out and sin anyway? Most of you would say, there's no way I could do that. I couldn't put my hand on the head of Jesus and see all he went through and then still go sin. I couldn't do that. And yet when we turn our backs on Jesus and leave him, the Bible says that's exactly what you do. You crucify him all over again. Hebrews 6 beginning in verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and they put him to an open shame. It ought to make you think and determine not to sin. But then this, it ought to make you never treat it with contempt. We partook of the Lord's Supper this morning. And the words in 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 27, are this. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. 
The Lord's Supper is a time when we take a good hard look not only at Jesus, but we take a good hard look at ourselves. We're supposed to be living as covenant people. And basically what the message is, is that you cannot eat from this table and the world's table at the same time. You can't go out there and feast with the world and the things that they do and then come here and feast this too because with every drop that goes down, you're drinking damnation to yourself. God says, that's the way you're going to treat blood? That's the way you're going to treat the blood of my son? That's all the respect that you're going to give to that? It ought to make us never treat it with contempt. Hebrews 10 and verse 29, great verse. Just a couple more points, the lesson's yours. Hebrews 10 and verse 29 says, Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy? Who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace. That's talking about us. That's talking about what we can do when we don't live like covenant people. Trampling the Son of God and counting the blood of the covenant as an uncommon thing. And then this, if you are not a Christian tonight, you need to apply the blood of Jesus to your life. A couple of interesting passages, I'll just allude to them. In Revelation 1 and verse 5, it says that Jesus washed us from our sins in his blood. He washed us from our sins in his blood. But then Acts 22 and verse 16, Saul of Tarsus was told, Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. So one verse says that our sins are washed away in the blood. The other verse says our sins are washed away at baptism. Which is it? It's at the same moment when we are buried into the death of Jesus Christ. We are contacting his blood. We are washed in his blood. And that blood is applied to us at baptism. Years ago, one of uh, Marshall Keeble, I never heard him preach, but I always heard about him. Listened to a couple of recordings of him. I always loved listening to him. He had a little whine in his voice. And he'd say, now you ladies, he said, when you ladies wash your clothes, he said, you wash your clothes with dash. Do they make dash anymore? He said, you, you, when you wash your clothes, you use dash. He said, but you don't just use dash. Dash won't get your clothes clean. You've got to get you some water. He said, but blood, water won't just wash your clothes. He said, you've got to have the water and dash. It's the water and the blood. It's the water and the blood. And is that not exactly what the Bible is saying? And when Jesus was crucified, from his side came forth blood and water. And that blood is applied in baptism. And my last point tonight is this. If you are a Christian and you sin, you must come yet once again for cleansing. In 1 John chapter 1, we're told that we must continually have this mindset of of needing the blood of Jesus. We live with that mindset. Always freely acknowledging our sins. And when we need to confess it specifically. We do. First John 1 and verse 9 says. If we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 7. The last part of it says. The blood of Jesus Christ his son. Will cleanse us from all sin. You know in a physical body. You know what it is that cleans your body. It's the blood. 
I finish with this tonight. Dr. Paul Brand says, he says, I used to think it strange that the Bible talks about the cleansing power of the blood. It seemed to me that the blood was messy stuff. I needed to wash my white lab coats if they became stained with blood. But today I love the analogy. It is so true of the body. The blood is constantly cleansing every cell and washing away all the debris that accumulates all the time. I like the phrase in Hebrews 9.14 that says, How much more shall the blood of Christ purge your conscience from dead works? The blood of Jesus flowing through our lives, cleansing us when we come in humble repentance. There is power in the blood. That's our lesson tonight. If you need to respond, come while we stand and as we sing.